The following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcast Network. For advertising information or to find more great podcasts, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com and follow us on Twitter at RealTheUnderdog. Welcome back to another episode of Create Your Shot. I am Tyler Laurie, and I am joined as always by my co-host up in the city of brotherly love, Christopher Smalls Angelos. Smalls, it's Monday night. The Eagles are one and two. We recorded our interview on Sunday after the Eagles loss. Tough. And you weren't, you know, I, I wouldn't say that you were as down as I thought. But I'm a professional. I, <laughs> I thought you were down. I thought you were down. I wasn't down. I wasn't, I wasn't down. I was a little disappointed, you know, not mad, uh, more disappointed. You know, disappointed in wide receivers that you can't catch your professional wide receiver. Seven drop passes, three offensive pass interferences. What can you do? You win some, you lose some, you got to recover. You got to coach those boys up, Dougie P, and just, you know, win the next one Thursday night. You know, Smalls, one of the things that I think is so great about football season, and I said this before, is like there are so many things that I totally believe are parallels to basketball in terms of coaching. And one of the things I noticed with the Eagles yesterday is like they lose the game by three. But like, is that a burn the tape game for you, Smalls? Like if you're Doug Peterson, are you just like, look, like we made mistakes, but like there were some crazy things like three offensive pass interferences, the two fumbles that just like ended drives, like you said, seven drops. Like if you're Dougie P, do you just say like, hey, we need a quick start? Like we we got to get ready for Thursday night. So like, I'm not worried about Sunday. Is that just something you think he has to do? That whole saying bothers me. I get it. It's like a saying, like there's no way they're going to bury the tape. It's all digital and online. Right. <laughs> but you know, Jake Franklin, when he took it out and buried the tape, I think that's such an act. Uh, I think you got to look at the tape, but you got to also go prepare for green Bay. You got to prepare, especially in a quick turnaround, take the positives and draw on those put instill confidence in your guys and go ahead and win. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I did think those lines on Bovada Sportsbook were, were pretty good uh, this Sunday. And I, and I thought like a lot of people were on the – a lot of people I thought were on the Lions. Like I, I did see some stuff on NFL Network, and I was surprised. And like the NFL is just so difficult, I think, to figure out. Like it just – it's just so hard. And But I will say I do think like the short week – like Thursday Night Football just seems like a toss-up to me. Like the NFL – yeah, the NFL is just so – demanding I think it's very hard to get guys ready and like all of a sudden you come off a Sunday game that's like hard fought and you have a ton of injuries and then like Monday is game plan day again and I mean we saw like the Eagles didn't even really practice last Wednesday like they turned to practice into a walkthrough because they were like we don't have enough guys so like this Thursday to me just seems I I just think the play on Bovada is probably the under (laughs) you know like I, I just don't see it the game seemed to be very sloppy you know you're going to Green Bay on a short week of travel Rodgers hasn't looked amazing. You know, he hasn't looked amazing either, but it, it just feels like the product is bad on Thursday nights. And that's why, like, I could see them winning on Thursday for sure because I just I don't, just don't know what to do on Thursdays. Like, I just think it's a coin flip all the time and the games are always bad. Yeah, I think you also got to look at you, the mentality you take into that is a uh, long weekend off, baby. You know, have something to celebrate, have something to party about. That's how I motivate my guys, you know, four days. You guys got four days now. You can enjoy Sunday football a little bit. Take a little rest. Get your body right. Maybe you have a couple of adult beverages. And do what you need to do. Got to win the game, though. Two and two. Got to be two and two. Yeah, I, I agree with that, actually. Like, And, and that's a kind of a thing that we've talked about on the show before is, like, how do you motivate your guys maybe before Christmas break, or, you know, if you're going home for Thanksgiving. And I think this is one of the ways – this is what you do. You're just like, hey, look. We win this game on Thursday night. We have a great plane ride back. And then you guys get three days to kind of, you know, do a little bit of whatever you want. And then we'll be back in here Monday and and ready to go again. And I think that's the part of on that 10-day break. Like, if you're 2-2 and 
you feel like you're the best two and two team in the country, right? Like you feel like you're, you're just ready to go. You're, you're making the playoffs in the NFC. You got two tough games before the Cowboys. And then all of a sudden, like you're just ready to go. And that's, that's the difference. And that's the mindset I think as an NFL team that you take. And I think that's a good point. Smalls like use that as kind of a carrot, like, Hey, this is what we need to do so that we feel really good over the next 10 days. Cause you're right. One in three on a 10 day break, you're just chomping at the bit to try to play again to try to eradicate your mistakes. But if you're two and two, you're feeling pretty good about taking advantage of that opportunity, I think. And I think that at the college level, you know, that's a that can be a good thing. It can also be a dangerous thing. And we've talked about it with coaches before. It's really knowing who your team is when you have a younger team uh, and they might be really talented that's a spot where you can have a lapse. Whereas a veteran team really understands, you know, we've got this break coming up, you know, we'll be able to recover all this good stuff, but we've got to focus on winning because you might've lost in the past. So really what plays into it for coaching is knowing your team, knowing how to specifically motivate and, um, you know, being able to game plan for that specific game, whether it's cutting back film and, doing a walkthrough and not doing a hard practice or some teams it might be like let's have a full practice let's have a couple days of full practices and really get in depth because these guys get it and understand that will help us win the game it's different uh it's different for every team it's about knowing your team and that's that's what coaches you can imagine struggle with uh in those situations I'm sure yeah I I totally agree with that and I think you know that's one of the things that we watch you know we, we talked about Pat Narduzzi last week and we talk about getting better and, and, you know, he has the most boneheaded call of all time against Penn state on fourth down. And then this past weekend against central Florida, he gets back on the horse and instead of kicking a field goal or whatever, he goes for it on fourth down with 50 some odd seconds left or whatever calls the Philly special. He said, call it the pit special <laughs> and they knock off a ranked team at home. And like, that's the part about coaching that I think is so awesome. It, you know, I was advocating for firing Pat Narduzzi because like if a guy makes that decision and then doubles down on it, you're just like, all right, well, he's not getting any better. And then, legitimately small seven days later he probably gets the biggest win of his coaching career and 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 makes a big time decision and I think that like you gotta let coaches you have to let them learn and that's why like guys like Pat Narduzzi it it worried me when he refused to admit that he made a mistake when guys admit that they make mistakes or guys admit like hey we're gonna be better next time like and they go in depth about why that is like I love those guys and for Pat Narduzzi like way to get yourself off the list because I still think you're an idiot. You do a lot of dopey things. And again, it's easy for me to evaluate on my couch when I'm only watching because like I might have a random sweat on Bovada or something. But like, I, I just appreciated him, you know, taking the bull by the horns, if you will, if we're going to use cliches and, and beating Central Florida rather than just being like, I'm going to be super boring out of the spread. Here we go. And, and I think like that was great. And that's why like Bruce Arians, I thought on Sunday, he's a temple guy. We love Bruce, but like, you take a delay of game and then Jameis takes a negative two yard play and then your kicker misses a field goal. And instead of you just saying like, Hey, we botched that last second situation. We need to be better. Like you say, you want to back your kicker up because he's better from distance, but then, and the drive before that you kicked a 23 yard field goal with him on fourth and two from your own five. Like that's the stuff where I think coaches need to be evaluated. And I, you know, I think we're getting better. I I, I think people are getting better at evaluating coaches and and allowing them to kind of, learn and grow especially at the college level but it's it's just so much fun now that like football is back because there's so much other stuff to I think evaluate where analytics maybe say one thing and the field says another and you can kind of blend the two and I I, I've enjoyed that so far in the first like three to four weeks of football smalls and that's one of the things that I think you know we're not doing the pick and winners podcast but I miss it a little bit because I think there are a lot of things to talk about while we kind of wait for October 1st if you will yeah 
And uh, yeah, totally. I, I think I agreed with everything you said and what you were leading to, uh, to keep with the cliche theme of this podcast. You know, when you're a kid, you don't know the iron's hot until you touch it a lot of times. But you might say that wasn't hot. That wasn't hot while the tears you know, stream down your face. And I think that might have been the case with Pat Narducci and these other coaches. They say things to the media. They don't want to admit wrong. The ego might get in the way. It might be right after the loss. But then you sit down and you start evaluating your decisions and now utilizing analytics because it affected you. You made the wrong decision. So you're starting to see uh, exactly what that situation really calls for. And the iron is hot. You realize you might want to touch it or you might want to throw that iron right through a window and never see an iron again. And that's, that's what happened here, I think, with Pat. He said, if I'm in that situation, especially in this game, ranked team, all this good stuff, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to have a play in my back pocket. I'm going to be super aggressive. And it worked out. And I think coaches sometimes, especially a little old school coaches, basketball, football, whatever it may be, analytics, you know, you've got to make a mistake first and then the analytics kind of supports you and then it helps you the next time. It might not go the right way the next time, you know, fourth and eight, a fourth and two, and you really should go for it. And you, you go for it and you don't get it. And then you start questioning yourself. I think you stick with the numbers a lot of times and you have to have good situational calls for those points in the game as well. That's really what's behind it. And that's really what coaching, you figure out what play call you're going to make or what set you're going to run in that situation. That's going to lend yourself to the higher portion of those analytical numbers. I think that's really the challenge for coaches, but also the benefit of all the data and information that's presently out there for us. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, getting to our guest, we uh, we buried it again. We've been having a good time talking in the beginning of these podcasts. But uh, Brian Weber, associate head coach at Stony Brook University and a guy that worked at Hoop Group. He was a GA at Akron, GA at Miami, and then, you know, worked at Hoop Group, director of team tournaments and then director of elite camp. And I think, you know, an interesting kind of career path. And we, we talked about it. And, you know, one of the I, I won't spoil the story, Smalls, but like, you know, one of the things that happened on his journey was like he kind of stalked, a, you know, saw an opposing another coach in the bathroom and it ended up being like a good networking moment for him. You know, you never know where you're going to be and you never know when you're going to run into people. And I, I think that one of the things with Brian is that he is uh, just endlessly positive, endlessly energetic. Like definitely, I, I think that is something that comes away from him on the show. But I did think that we, we kind of talked about advice for young coaches and, and there are a lot of guys that kind of will probably want to be in Brian's position. And I remember, you know, 10, 11 years ago going to hoop group being like, okay, well, these elite directors have all gotten jobs and they've gotten on the road as D1 assistants. Like, how do I put myself in this position? And I think small is like, this is an interview to listen to because Brian is not a, you know, not a former player, was not a manager in college, was kind of coaching basketball. And then, you know, decided he wanted to be a GA and, and, and had to take some chances like, well, oh, what do I do? Do I become an ops guy? Do I do this? Do I do this? And ends up at, at Hoop Group and, and parlays it into a uh, on-the-road coaching uh, D1 assistant job at Stony Brook. And I think this is the type of podcast to listen to, especially if you're not a former player and you don't have a ton of connections. It's like, how do you build your Rolodex from nothing to get to be, I mean, this guy, he's an associate head coach in the America East at 30 years old. And that's, I mean, that's really impressive, Smalls, you know, and that's what I think a lot of guys will strive to be. Oh, it's super impressive. And I think, you know, and again, I think he has a really good story in here, but what I took out of it and what young people don't hear enough in this business sometimes is brutal honesty. And I think he had an encounter with a coach, um, you know, about recruiting, about your value. 
you know, anyone, there's a dime a dozen guys who can watch film, who can do the X's and O's, who can do all the right administrative work in the office and things like that. But what really separates yourself is not just knowing people, but how to connect with people, relationships, multiple levels, families, coaches, uh, players, and get those players, not just on campus, not just you know, to the point of getting them in the door, but get them in the door and keep them there. That's recruiting. That's demonstrating your value. No one's going to hire you unless you do that. And sometimes it takes different routes, whether it's coaching clinics, uh, you know, going to speak at a high school or going to watch a high school clinic, a coach puts on a high school clinic, going there and meeting people, AU coaches, all this different stuff. You've got to build your value in recruiting at the college level. That's brutally honest. If you aren't that bad, you're replaceable and you can't be replaceable in this business. And I think one of the things that Brian points out too is like, you got to look yourself in the eye and you got to understand what your limitations are. Like you have to know that there are tons of people out there that are like you that probably have better connections that you do. And it doesn't matter. We talk about this in the show, but like, it doesn't matter if you come from a winning program, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you're pro- like, if you work for coach K, like, yeah, he can make a call. And, and John Calipari, like those guys can make calls and they can get you jobs. At 98% of the jobs in the country, if you're a GA, and, and let's say that there's more than one GA there, like, I hate to use these terms, Smalls, but like, you likely aren't shit, you know? You're 23 yeah. years old, and like, yeah, you work hard, and yeah, you'll cut up film, but like, everybody does that. So I thought what Brian said was like, you look yourself in the mirror, and you listen to the coaches on staff, like Chris Caputo at Miami, you're welcome to come on whenever you want, Chris, but if he looks you in the eye and he says like, Brian, you need to be indispensable, and working at Hoop Group is how you become ind- indispensable then do the hard stuff. Go work for Rob Kennedy, which we both know is absolutely brutal, but it's good. It it, it puts you in a position to recruit. It gets you in touch with AAU coaches and good stakeholders that you need to know. And not just on the East Coast, like it's more on the East Coast, but it's it's basically a national job at this point. Sure. Like that's where I think Weber deserves a ton of credit for understanding like, look, this is going to be really hard and I don't like it. But the bottom line is if I want to get to where I want to be, I got to do the hard stuff. And I think like, a lot of guys are not necessarily willing to look themselves in the eyes and admit that they're, they are replaceable. And I think like, that's good. Like you want confidence. We talk about irrational confidence all the time, but I, I thought like that story from Brian was so great because I think for guys like you and me smalls and, and, and a bunch of other guys out there that just want to get into college. And it's like, Hey, I did laundry for a lot of years. I rebounded for a lot of years. Like that's great. So did a lot of people, why are you different and how are you going to become different? And I thought that Brian pointing that out was, was arguably maybe the best 20 minutes of kind of like, information that we've had on the pod in a while because I I think it is great for your professional development to have to maybe listen to this and then look yourself in the mirror and be like, okay, what do I do differently? Uh, I totally, a lot of this business, if if you look at any industry, right? Look at the sales. If you want to be a good salesperson, you have to do the effort stuff. You have to hit your effort goals. That's phone calls, that's emails, that's organized, that's time management, setting appointments. But at the end of the day, The only thing that separates yourself is your numbers. It's who you get in the door and who you keep in the door and who's valuable to you as a business and how you mature that relationship over the years. That's that's exactly college basketball. You have to learn, you have to know basketball. You have to know how to cut up film and present that film. You have to do the effort stuff of like phone calls and managing time and being on time for meetings and doing campus visits. But at the end of the day, you have to convert on recruits. They have to be good. They have to be good people on campus. 
you know, outstanding community members, things like that. And that's what separates yourself as an assistant. And that's what gets you to the head honcho when you can more focus on, yeah, recruiting, but X's and O's and the stuff you love to do from a basketball perspective. And that's what we have to keep in line as young coaches, as young people trying to break in this business. You also, we always say, have to be yourself. You can't try to be this guy who's like going to change his complete personality. Do it with your personality, but go the extra mile and figure out how you can become better within yourself, within your own personality of converting on those goals and adding value to your program that no one else can do or that the next guy is in Arkansas and you're in Philly that can do. That's the key to this. And that's what Brian said, Yeah, pretty much. Absolutely. I mean, we just basically spoiled the whole podcast, but we will not we will not go on any longer. Uh, as always, if you like what you hear, please do reach out to us. We are at Create Your Shot on Twitter. DMs are always open, so slide on in. At Create Your Shot Pod on Instagram, Create Your Shot on Facebook, and Create Your Shot at gmail.com. Uh, I think that's all I usually say. Smalls. Oh, no, no, hold on. If you like what you hear, leave us five stars. Uh, write us a review. It pushes us up the rankings. If you don't like what you hear, you can still leave us five stars. Never have to listen again. And uh, Smalls and I are, are going to be – we're going to be here all fall. We're going to be talking football at the beginning of the shows. Maybe we'll make these a little bit longer. Maybe we'll bring back Bart for, you know, an earlier episode or something like that. But uh, the season's close, man. It's close. It's close. The Bova- Honestly, the here's the Bovada over-under for times you screwed up an intro. It's only like two and a half out of 150. <laughs> so, you know, someone's looking to cash out during the year. This might be the episode that puts you – I cut out, I actually, I already edited the interview and then we did the intro after just to get behind the curtain and I cut out me screwing up. So Smalls is going to sound like an idiot and I'm not cutting this out, but (laughs) we appreciate everybody who listens and uh, enjoy this interview with Brian Weber, the associate head coach of the Stony Brook Seawolves. And we will be back next week. Please be joined by Brian Weber, associate head coach of the Stony Brook Seawolves. Brian, it's Sunday night. It's, uh, you know, sort of the middle of the day of football, but we appreciate you stopping in. How are you today? I'm doing great, man. I appreciate you guys having me on. Absolutely. Uh, we'll just dive right into it. This is uh, an interesting year for you. This is your fourth year at Stony Brook. You're fresh off a of promotion to uh, associate head coach, new boss, Gino Ford, who was on staff before. But, a new, you know, new staff members and a new season coming in. How did you guys kind of attack the transition, you know, in April when you found out that going forward, Coach Bowles was going to be at Ohio, which makes a lot of sense. And then you guys were going to be kind of building on last year's success still in uh, Long Island. Yeah, well, it was a total whirlwind. Uh, it was a little bit of a crazy time around here because we uh, – Coach Bowles uh, essentially, you know, had had addressed us and told us that he was going to potentially, you know, have an opportunity to maybe go to OU. Didn't know if he was going to do it or not. And that was like Wednesday. And by Sunday, you know, he had, you know, accepted the position. So, you know, we were trying to figure out exactly, you know, who was going where, what we were going to do, what was even possible. Um, and the real, the good part was, uh, Coach Ford, myself, and Coach Ness, who is is uh, the operations guy at Ohio now we stayed back with our guys and, and coached the team against South Florida uh, in the CBI. And, 
you know, and I thought when we, we blew a 20 point lead at halftime that there was no chance we would get the job here. <laughs> but, uh, but, but it was a great, you know, opportunity for, for our athletic director to kind of see what this operation would look like if, if Gino got the job here. And, you know, and it was, it was kind of an easy choice. Uh, you know, the big thing that, that, that Sean Hilbrin, who, who does an amazing job here and, you know, is all about winning and all about the players and all about like the experience of the student athletes here. The, the best thing uh, that he wanted to do was, was keep it as status quo as, as possible, meaning like just keep it running. Cause you know, we went 24 and nine, we had 11 freshmen and sophomores and we didn't necessarily finish the season the way we wanted to, you know, we had some big wins against South Carolina and Rhode Island and George Washington and, you know, and some, some marquee victories for a group of young guys, but we kind of sputtered down the stretch. So, you know, we understand that like we have an opportunity to, to potentially do some really good things with the roster. And, you know, and so we had to try to, you know, just make sure that we could keep the roster together. And, you know, one way that that was possible was, you know, to, to give coach Ford, you know, the head coaching job and, and to, to make me the associate head coach. And, and it was good because, uh, you know, I mean, coach, coach Ford, not a lot of guys on staff, especially at this level have, you know, coach, coach Bowles, who was an amazing, you know, mentor to all of us and a really good coach, you know, his top assistant was Gino, who had been the Mac coach of the year at Kent State two times, had coached in the Missouri Valley as the head coach when Wichita State and Creighton and all those schools were there. So to have a guy like that already on staff, you know, the, the promotion process for him was, was uh, a no-brainer, in my opinion. And, and, and obviously, the majority of our roster stayed intact, and we've added some good pieces. So I think you know, so far it looks good, but we're, you know, we're zero and zero. So everybody still loves us. <laughs> yeah, I actually, it's, it's funny, especially because you mentioned it. Cause obviously with coach Bowles, like he's a guy whose name has been hot for a while and he's like an Ohio alum and, and he worked at Ohio state. Like it made so much sense at the time, but you're right. Like you guys, you go from 18 wins your first year, I think 13 and then 24 last year and are returning everybody except for what one senior and then a Kwasi Yeboah transferred to Rutgers but you do have Mikhail Foreman ready to step in and then I know Frank Pacelli like maybe but who knows with the NCAA so my gut feeling is like expectations for you guys this year just have to be pretty high like you have to feel like man like we are loaded with talent and I know the America East is very good like don't get me wrong I'm not trying to sell anybody long or short but I would just I just would have to feel especially for the guys on the team too like excitement's got to be really high up there well, no, that's that's 100 percent true. And, you know, and obviously you, you always want to undersell and over deliver and not vice versa. But, you know, the reality is, you know, Stony Brook Athletics uh, is putting a ton of resources in and winning is at a premium right now. And it's something that's being emphasized. And, you know, and a lot of that is, you know, going to raise the expectations. If, if you're getting a lot, then there's a lot uh, expected in return. And that's kind of where you want to be. You'd rather be at a place that has those kind of expectations. And, you know, and I think that like with our roster intact, I mean, we have, you know, Miles Latimer, who was on the all freshman team, Elijah Oliani, who was all league. Jeff O'Cheery was a defensive player of the year. And Andrew Garcia was the sixth man of the year in our conference. And then we added three guys and that are going to be in the rotation. And that's not including Frankie Policelli, who you know we're still waiting on the NCAA for, for a decision on the waiver stuff. But, you know, the reality is, you know, we should have on paper a, an opportunity to win a lot of games. But, you know, as everybody knows at this level, the, the winning of a lot of games is great. Uh, but the, the most important thing is winning when it matters. And to this point, we haven't been able to do that. Uh, you know, and that's why I think the experience factor of some of the guys who have actually done it now in real games, it's going to, 
you know, hopefully play dividends down the stretch. Uh, you know, just, just having the opportunity to, to make, you know, key plays when, when you're at Vermont, you know, in a tie game with three minutes to go, you know, it's just a, a group that had never experienced that before, like, like we had last year, uh, you know, and, and hopefully just having that experience last year will kind of prepare these guys to, to have some success this year. What was it, what was it like for you basically coming from hoop group to being on the road, that transition, there has to be a learning curve and a challenge to what were some of those challenges and how did you overcome them and, you know, ultimately thrive in your position? Well, the, as you know, the, the hoop group army runs deep, right? There's a ton of uh, guys who have spent, you know, some time in a full time capacity at the hoop group that are, that are coaching college basketball uh, at one level or another. And the reason why a lot of hoop group guys on the East coast get hired as, as everybody usually knows is because you just connect yourself with so many people. You're just dealing with AAU coaches and high school coaches and, you know, and, and you're, you're in a position where you can actually help those guys, you know, whether it's working their guys out or, you know, getting them to camps or getting them exposure or getting their guys college scholarship opportunities. So, you know, by the time you are, you know, able to get a college coaching job, the first couple months is, you, you know, for a guy who doesn't have that experience, it's a little bit more difficult because, you know, you have to kind of figure out who's who you got to introduce yourself to people and, you know, if you're a hoop group guy, then you take a job and you kind of can take it on the run. And that's kind of what, what we did here. And I, you know, was able, cause when we got here, we had to fill five scholarships and, and we got the job in April. So, you know, the reality was, you know, we had to, you know, use some of those uh, relationships to, to get some guys that maybe were still floating around. And, uh, and so like, yeah, the, the first, and foremost reason why obviously those you know, people get hired from the hoop group is, is the recruiting side of things. Uh, the transition to becoming an assistant coach from the hoop group uh, well, it's pretty smooth. Uh, you know, the one thing with working for Rob Kennedy, who is the most demanding, hardest boss I've ever worked for. Um, and I, and I actually have a ton of respect for Rob and we have a great relationship to this day because uh, he kind of teaches you how to work and you kind of figure out when you, when you work for a guy like Rob, like, you know, if, if you're supposed to get, a, B, and C done, then you have to get A, B, and C done. And there's no excuses. You can't go into his office and say, hey, I, I didn't get C done, but this is why. And, you know, there just wasn't a whole lot of room for, you know, why didn't you get that done? It was more so like, okay, it's the night before something. You know, I don't have this done. There has to be another way. And you just continue to turn over rocks and figure things out. And that's, you know, essentially that's what, you know, my position is here. You know, a lot of times it's, you know, things seem difficult or they seem unrealistic or, they seem impossible and you got to kind of figure a way because it's, it's all results driven. You have to get something done. Either you win the game or you lose, either you get the recruit or you lose. Uh, and that's kind of what you learn at the hoop group. And I, and I have became a hundred times better worker from, from spending time at that place. And, you know, the, the basketball side of things, uh, you do do more basketball stuff at the hoop group than you think. Uh, you know, it's, it's obviously more of a sales type position because you're getting kids to come to camp. You know, it, you know, we have five camps in the summer. There was 900 kids per camp. It's a lot of time on the phone with people, but the reality is it's a platform. So if you're the elite director, or if you're the director of team tournaments, you really have a great platform where you're able to deal with a ton of different people. And that means you can use that platform for whatever you want. So what I would do is I would, work out, you know, some of the elite high schools in our area for free, I would go and I would do 
you know, clinics for people. I would, uh, you know, just do different things in that nature that would sort of keep me up to my basketball side of things. Uh, and that's kind of what you're able to do when, when you work at that place and you have that kind of platform. After the first year at Stony Brook, do you remember after that first year of, you know, going through some of the things that worked and didn't work for you personally and the staff? And how did you guys kind of come together and grow from that? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the fact that, that Coach Bowles, it was his first ever uh, head coaching position. I mean, obviously, he had been an assistant coach for 20, 25 years, and he's worked for all kinds of great people. So he came in with a pretty direct understanding of what he wanted to do. And then, you know, having great people around us, like, you know, like Coach Ford, like who's our head coach now, and, you know, some of the other people on staff, it was, it was kind of a, a good transition. But then we, you know, the, the, the reality was we didn't really know what we had roster-wise. And, you know, the team that we walked into, um, we had – they had just come off the championship, so expectations were uh, super high. But with that being said, they graduated Jameel Warney, who's the – you know, all time, you know, probably the best player to ever play in the America East. And he's still making really good money playing in Asia, had a, had a cup of coffee in, in the NBA. You know, Carson Purifoy, who, you know, was a 1500 plus point scorer here and, and two other starters, uh, you know, in the highest point per game guy we had coming back, averaged 10 points a game on that team. And he actually got kicked out of school, you know, the second week we had the job. So, you know, we didn't have him. And, you know, we so we just didn't really know what, what, what we had roster wise. And, it took a little bit of our non-conference to sort of get into the groove. But, you know, one thing is, you know, we had a, a kid, Lucas Woodhouse, who's actually our video coordinator now. And, you know, Lucas should have been the, the player of the year in the league that year. In my opinion, you know, he was, you know, he was unbelievable come conference season. And you had that one guy that you kind of rely on. And, you know, we want a lot of close games. And, you know, I don't know if I would say that we necessarily overachieved or not. But, you know, I thought uh, overall it was a pretty good transition but you know in, on that year on our best day I'm not sure that we could have beat Vermont on their worst and that's kind of what we've been fighting to to get past since we've been here yeah and I mean that's what you're gonna fight it feels like every single year because they're just they're just like a machine right now and it's not like they're winning the conference every year but it's just like they're gonna they get everybody's best punch in the mouth I, I do want to talk about kind of how you built your roster at Stony Brook because we talked about the recruiting piece a little bit and how you got to kind of recruit at you know, hoop group. And I, I, you know, I've been in similar situations before, as you know, and as Smalls knows, but like, it is more like a sales position. How, how did you hit the ground running as a recruiter in terms of like getting kids specifically? Cause yeah, you have good relationships with AAU coaches and some high school coaches, and you do get to watch a ton of basketball, like your presence is out there. But in terms of getting a kid to commit, you know, to come to Stony Brook, a place that, you know, I don't know how much familiarity you had with before, when you got there, obviously they had played well, but you know, how did you guys kind of decide to build your roster? Because you have an interesting mix of some JUCO guys, some obviously some four-year guys, some four-year transfers. Like, was that always the plan to try to get the best players available? Or have you guys been like, we're just going to evaluate as deep as we can and kind of hone in on some regional ties? Like, what what has been the style in terms of building the roster at Stony Brook since you've been there? Yeah, kind of honestly a, a mixture of all of that. I mean, we, you know, the fir first and foremost, like, the the reason why this is a you know you never want to take a job where where you don't believe in the place right because at the end of the day you're having to sell the place and you're going to have to sell the experience to the players that are coming there and you know Stony Brook's an unbelievable place it shows well on visits we have beautiful resources we have a brand new weight room uh, we have a brand you know brand new locker room video room just for men's basketball auxiliary gym like we have things that a lot of player a lot of teams at our level just don't have so if we can get kids to campus 
we have a really good chance of, you know, at least being in the mix. And, you know, generally speaking, that's, that's how we, we attack recruiting. And, you know, we try to get players that maybe, maybe we shouldn't on paper get. Um, but then beyond that, the hoop group stuff helped me personally, because you see so many different levels of kids. I think a lot of people have, oh, that kid's a high major kid, or that kid's a division three kid, but you know, how many really high major practices has somebody been to, or how many division three games has somebody seen, right? So like, you know, we get to, we got to see all that firsthand when we were at the hoop group and we went to a ton of practices like during the winter, that's the slow time for us. So, you know, we would go to everything from, you know, I went to a college of Worcester practice in Ohio and I thought Steve Moore, I thought that was one of the best practices I've ever seen in my life. Um, you know, and I'd go to Monmouth and I'd go to, you know, I went to a Syracuse practice and that's kind of, you know, that's kind of how I was able to see a bunch of different levels. And then you just see so many kids that you kind of start to formulate, Hey, you know, where, where would I take him at? And, uh, you know, and you kind of had the list coming in and that's some of those kids happen to be Juco kids. And some of those kids happen to be, you know, high school kids, but the reality is, you know, you just want to try to put the best roster together. And, and on top of that, you know, we're not going to sacrifice uh, the type of kid somebody is uh, if they're a talented player, because there's a ton of really good players out there, especially for, for this place. So, you know, our thing is we wanted, you know, this was a, a coach Bowles philosophy. He wanted, high character kids that were uh, love the game, the basketball, and were serious about earning their degree. So that was three things we always looked for in a kid. And cause if you love the game of basketball and you're a high character kid and you're a talented kid, you're going to continue to get better and, and you're going to, you know, help the culture, which I think is as important as anything. So, you know, it's, it's uh, there's no exact science, I don't think, but the reality is you want to put the best roster out there with the best kids possible and, and make sure they're a lot better as seniors than they were as freshmen when they got here. Yeah, I want to go back before Hoop Group, actually, because it's you mentioned the, the one thing that is if you work in the AAU sphere, team tournament sphere, whatever, like you do get to watch a ton of players and it, it makes you better in terms of like getting to see guys multiple times and understanding kind of which evaluation setting you need to trust yourself the most. But so you're you're a GA for a year at Akron, and then a GA at Miami for Jim Laranega for a year, and then you end up taking this job at Hoop Group. Was the plan after being a GA like I want to try to get a division one, maybe administrative role, or did you know, like, Hey, if I go to hoop group, like this is the best chance to get me directly on the road because, you know, like we've said, guys sometimes can get stuck at the hoop group. You can be there a little longer. It is a very demanding job just as it would be if you worked at, you know, any other kind of AAU outfit. It just is a lot of hard work, but did you take that job with that in mind? Or was it something that just kind of popped up and you were like, ah, you know, we'll see how this goes for a little while. Or did you actually have it planned out? Because I, I do think, if you don't know what you're getting yourself into, like you said, like you learn how to work real, real quick. I mean, it hits you like a ton of bricks, especially when it becomes event season. Like, holy shit, that, that gets, that gets on you so fast. Um, I'll, I'll be a hundred percent honest with you. My, my, uh, my journey through this whole thing has been kind of, kind of crazy. I mean, I was a, I was a full-time teacher for one year after, uh, after I got done at the university of Akron. I was a varsity assistant basketball coach, like just not really knowing what I wanted to do. I was coaching, I was teaching freshman English. And then I, I, you know, I, I knew I didn't want to teach. I knew I loved coaching basketball. I had coached basketball throughout my college career. Uh, I was an eighth grade coach, a JV coach. Uh, so I, I had done that, you know, I knew I wanted to do it full time. I didn't exactly know how that was going to be possible. Um, but, you know, what I ended up doing was, I had a connection. My varsity assistant coach uh, is now the head, uh, the head coach at Mount Union College in Ohio. And, uh, and I said, hey, you know, his name's Coach Fuline. I was like, hey, coach, yeah, I'd love to come and just volunteer for you. 
you know, I'm just going to try to get my master's. I don't really know what I want to do. And he said, well, what do you want to do ultimately? I said, well, I want to coach division one college basketball. And I had no feel. I had no clue. I didn't have any idea what anything even meant. Uh, and he's like, well, if you're going to do that, then, you know, you have to get in at the division one level somehow. So I actually, my, my GA spot at the University of Akron was set up by Coach Feline. He was friends with uh, uh, Coach McFadden, Rick McFadden, who's one of my best friends now, who's now at Duquesne with Dambrot and those guys. Um, and that was a volunteer spot. So I just went in and said, hey, like, you know, I love to help the team out however I can. And, you know, and the reality was I was free labor and, and, I, and I showed up every single day and, and I eventually made myself valuable there. But it, it started off as who, who is the guy in the corner, you know? And, uh, and I just kind of stayed with it throughout the whole year. And I, I went to the Rising Coaches Conference. Uh, I know you had Trey on the other day. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, that was my, you know, the first thing I did to try to, like, network. And Chris Caputo, who's the associate head coach at Miami now, uh, spoke that year. It was the second year that the Rising Coaches existed. And, uh, and he gave his phone number out to everybody. And I just stayed in touch with him the whole year. I had no idea what I was doing. I would text him 10 times, uh, you know, every two weeks. and he would respond sometimes he wouldn't sometimes. And, you know, the reality was I was just trying to like touch as many people as I could. I had no idea what I was doing. And, um, and I had set up to meet with him at the final four, uh, after that, that year at Akron was over. And, uh, essentially he blew me off. Uh, and, and, and he'll laugh about it to this day. Like, like I couldn't get a hold of him, like whatever. And, uh, Sam Winooski, uh, another friend of mine, you know, we were literally just like trying to figure out where coaches were hanging out, you know, how everybody does when they first start going to the final four. And we ended up going to some random bar and, you know, it was a fine night, you know, whatever. We were just having some fun and, and relaxing. And it was like the last night of, of the final four. So I'm like, you know, it kind of sucks that, that, that I didn't get a chance to talk to him, but you know, he's a big time, important guy at Miami. Like I get it. I'm nobody. And, uh, and I ran into him at the bathroom uh, at the bar I was at. Literally, oh, I the old the old urinal network. Love it, one hundred percent. So, so I, I end up walking out. I was like, all right, well, I can't talk to him in the bathroom. He's gonna think I'm a, a, a stalker, like some weirdo. And uh, and so like he walked out. I like pretended to run into him. I'm like, hey, funny meeting you here. You know, he was probably like, you know, crap. You know, like, like here's this this crazy person. But he was great. I mean, he talked to me for probably ten minutes, apologized, said my wife came into town, blah blah blah. And he's like, let's just stay in touch. And I said, that's great. Two weeks after the final four, uh, I'm literally walking my dog, uh, planning on going back to Akron and my phone rings and it's, it's, it's Chris Caputo. And, you know, I'm like, Oh, this guy's great. You know, he really wants to connect. And so he, he started asking me a bunch of questions and, you know, he's one, he asked me one question, another question, you know, I'm 15 minutes into the conversation. I, I'm like, Oh, I'm on an interview. I don't even know. You know, I don't even, this is, this is an interview. This isn't a conversation. So like, they ended up flying me down uh, maybe a week or two after that. And I got super lucky. I, I ended up getting the job um, as a GA. So that's why I went to Miami my second year. That was a real GA spot. They paid for my, you know, class and all that stuff. And that's, that's why I left Akron and went to Miami. And, and obviously coach Dan Brown and those guys had a huge, you know, to do with me getting it, you know, just helping and putting in a good word for me. Um, you know, and then after my, my stint at Miami, it was just, everybody was in a really good mood after that year because, you know, I like to think it had something to do with how well I was cutting up the film, uh, you know, and how, how, you know, awesome I was throwing the towels to the guys. But, uh, but that was the year that Miami was actually like number one in the country. And, you know, we had won the ACC regular season and, and made the sweet 16 and everything. So, you know, I was thinking I was on the fast track and, uh, <laughs> and yeah. 
<laughs> no, it's 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 so funny because I I like. I've been there before, man. You know what I mean? Like you just think like things are going great and you think you're just this like unbelievable asset. Like, man, how can I not get a job? And then you like get hit in the face by the industry and you just realize that like, it just doesn't matter. Like if you were like working for Duke, maybe it would matter, but it's like, it's just so your team success is so limited when you're that far down the food chain, you know, like it just doesn't, it's like, okay, he knows how to win. And like Larry Nagel will make a call for him and whatnot. But at the end of the day, like there's just so many people ahead of you in the pecking order. And I, I remember like learning that, Brian, like I vividly remember that because it's, it's just funny to think back now, you know? A hundred percent. The reality is like, you know, no matter, no matter where you've been, you know, the next guy that's going to hire you, it, you're still going to have to provide a asset to that person that, that the thousands of people that want the job aren't able to provide. And that's kind of, you know, and there was, I didn't really have a trick, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to work really hard. Well, so does everybody else. I'm going to, you know, I, I've been around winning. Well, that's great. Uh, you know, you did, did you recruit Shane Larkin? No. Okay. So what'd you do? You rebounded for him at midnight, you know? So, uh, so the reality was, you know, I was going to take a, an ops job. I got, you know, coach Conkle, who, who was one of our other assistants, who's now the head coach at Louisiana tech. Uh, he actually was, was in the mix for, for the, uh, a job in Texas, a, a low major job in Texas. And he offered me the ops job. I took the job and then, and then it fell through at the last second. So I would have been in Texas as the ops guy. Uh, it, it, I think it was Texas state, maybe um, one of those. I, I would And, and I was like devastated at the time. I'm like, you know, what am I going to do? You know, I, I, I have to be in basketball. It's like what I've always wanted to do. And, uh, and so finally, you know, Caputo called me in his office and he's, and he essentially broke it all down for me. He said, you know, do you want to coach division one college basketball? Yes, I do. He's like, you know, you were unbelievable here. You did a great job for us. You were always available when we needed you, but you don't have anything that would ever make me as a head coach. If I ever get one of these head coaching jobs, like, why would I hire you as an assistant? I'll hire you as my ops guy. I'll hire you as my video coordinator, but you know, you don't have really anything specifically. You didn't score 1500 points in college. You're not a, you know, there's nothing that you don't have anything that's, that's really separating you. He's like, you, you need to go work at this place called the Hoop Group. And I was like, well, I don't really want to get out of the business, coach. Like, I'm at Miami. Like, I have, you know, I don't even know how I ended up here in the first place. Like, this, you know, everything is working out great. Like, I don't really want to get out of the business. And then, you know, he ended up really convincing me that it was, that it was my best move. I trusted him. Um, and my first year at the Hoop Group, I was actually, my first half year, I was actually the ops guy at the Hoop Group, which is like, you know, you might as well be an accountant. And, uh, and, and I honestly was like, this is, this was the worst decision I've ever made. Like, I, I mean, I was miserable every night, you know, my, my now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, uh, was just like, what, what are you doing? Like, you know, you, what is this, you know, everything. So I, I didn't, you know, and then essentially just three and a half years later, you just look back and you're like, it was the best decision I've ever made. It was, you know, I, I give, you know, Coach Traputo, Chris, I give him, you know, the, the full, uh, you know, it was, it was a hundred percent because of him full credit for the decision. And, uh, you know, and I would do it again, I would recommend it to anybody else because it just, you know, it's just not a lot of ways to separate yourself in a super competitive business. Yeah, I, I uh, totally agree with that. And I'm, I'm curious about your networking because like I said, like you get to hoop group and like, you kind of are forced to network, especially with like high school guys, but the Chris Caputo story is quite interesting because like, I could see some coach as like a kid comes up to him at the urinal, like he might be like, oh, this kid's really into it. Like, I like that. Or like, oh, he huddled outside the bathroom and waited for me. Like, what a coward. But like, 
how did, how did you network, you know, when you were at Akron and when you were at Miami, like when you're a young guy coming after being like a high school coach, like not a manager or anything like that, like, how did you kind of build out your contacts and get them even before you went to Hoop Group? Like, how did you make sure you had some guys like, hey, I can lean on this? Because I do think that's one of the things where young coaches are kind of not sure how to handle it. Because like you said, like you text somebody every two weeks, you don't really want to be a bother, but you don't want to fall off their radar. And it's kind of a delicate balance, Brian. So like what worked the best for you, especially as you were coming up? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of these are, are things that a lot of people have, have said before. So I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. But the, the reality is the, the most important people to network with are the people that you work with every day, because nobody really knows your true value, except for the people that are, are working 20 feet from you every single day. So, you know, there could be a, a hundred people who think I'm a great guy and they appreciate my happy birthday text and, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, when, when, when somebody goes to make a hire, if they, you know, say somebody knows, uh, you know, coach Ford and they call him, they say, nah, he's a, he's lazy. He doesn't work hard. He, he thinks he knows everything. He's a slappy, right? Like, like there's no way that that somebody is going to get that you're not going to get a job and and that's and that's kind of you know the number one thing i think people they network outward a, a little bit maybe too much what without making sure they're actually dominating what they're doing at the time and whether that's being the the best ga humanly possible and and being because the reality is like if chris caputo didn't think that i did a good job at miami then you know chris had a million more contacts I and mean, he still to this day has more contacts than anybody i've ever met you know, he never would have made that call to Rob, who I, to this day today, I, I was the very first person that Rob Kennedy ever hired that he did not know before the interview process. So that was like, uh, you know, whether I went, you know, usually the people had either been a camper or they worked some camps like like, you, you know, how it is in the summer, like some of those, you know, like, but I was the first guy that he had hired full time and it was 100 percent based off the recommendation of Chris. So, you know, that's that's kind of number one from the networking standpoint. And then just being consistent and then, and then not getting discouraged if somebody like blows you off or whatever. And that's just the reality. I mean, it's, you know, you're trying to, to build with people and it never, it never ends. I mean, people are busy and, you know, and, and I try to do as good of a job as I can now when, when you have, you know, you're getting 30 emails a day from, from different GAs and managers and stuff across the country that are like trying to do what, what I did back in the day. And, and you want to try to get back to all those guys as best you can. But the reality is you can't get back to everybody. And that's, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of what it is. But I think you just got to be ultra aggressive with it. And, you know, the, the reality is if you stay persistent with something for long enough and you do a good enough job where you're at, it's going to work out for you in the end. I really believe that. Are you getting that many emails from GAs and managers? Has it become like, really? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just was curious, like, has it become that guy? I mean, I guess guys are more, the market just gets more and more saturated year by year. So it doesn't necessarily surprise me, but that seems like a high number. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm probably being a little facetious. I'm, I'm, I'm probably exaggerating slightly, but there are a ton of. I mean, if I go through my, my, my Stony Brook mailbox today, you know, and some of that is because a lot of those guys, you know, are in the same, you know, the same trees of the hoop group hiring them in the summer, and then they have my information and they see that I was a non-player that, you know, and they can like relate to me and, you know, and those kind of things. So, so there's a little bit probably within the story of like how I've, you know, been able to go through this whole thing uh, that, that, you know, and, and, and with good reason, you know, I, you know, the same, same way that I would have been looking for a guy that, you know, cause a lot of times it would seem somewhat unrealistic for some of these guys if they didn't see other people doing it. Um, so I would, I would, I mean, I am getting a ton of those like texts and emails and stuff from, from different people and, you know, maybe not 30 a day, but that's kind of how I am. I just exaggerate a lot. 
No, no, but I, I get that. Like you'd be looking for like a Zach Bovair or like a Mike Fairley before you who were like, you know, either like a manager or like, you know, Mike was a JV player at St. Joe's and then like he works at Hoop Group and now he's on the road and he, you know, he goes from Niagara to Hofstra and it's like, you look at that and you're like, okay, how, how can I get what they have and not, you know, do it the exact same way, but like, what did they do? Because that route has worked for them before. So hopefully I can communicate them because you're, you're exactly right, Brian. Like, I, I don't know that I can think off the top of my head of anybody who had worked there before that wasn't at the very least, like you said, a camper or a runner, like one of those two things. Like it's sort of just like the natural life cycle or you're a coach who coached there in the summer. It's like those three things are kind of what it is. Like maybe you're a D3 coach or a high school coach. And then like you tack on, you're like, hey, I'm gonna try to give it a shot. So it, it's interesting. Maybe Chad Babel, maybe before, I'm not sure if Chad, he probably coached there as like an AAU coach, but I don't know. If yeah, was, I mean, you got to think. Chad was with the Gauchos, and so he, you know, he was, you know, I'm sure that there was there was a ton of interaction between the Gauchos when they were like with Duran Scott and all those guys, you know, going to the hoop group stuff. Like, I'm sure there was interaction before that. Would be my uh, guess. I'm, there's no doubt that like he had met Rob before that. Like, no question about that. Like, I'm just saying. Like, I do, I do think you're right about that. Like, I'm sure he coached it, you know, because, but it's, but it is, it is true, and that's why I can understand that, like you'd be somebody that guys would want to reach out to. So I wasn't trying to like poke fun at you. I just was curious because I, I just remember like, like you said, and, and it's also, it's, it's people in your coaching tree who have people reach out to them and they're like, you know who you should talk to? Brian Weber, because like, that's a guy that they're like, hey, you know, he's a little bit younger. Like he's gone through this. Like what advice are you giving those guys, Brian? I mean, I know you're not responding to every email individually all the time. I'm sure you weighed and responded to a bunch at once, but like, what advice do you have for those young coaches? I'd actually love to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, and, and, and to be honest with you and not, not to be, not to be redundant, uh, you know, and, and I, and I don't mind, you know, he's, uh, you know, a really good friend of mine, but, but, you know, I, I had a, a guy who, who literally just got a GA spot, you know, he was a, a former hoop group guy that we helped get a GA spot and, you know, and, and he was at the job for, for maybe three weeks. I mean, he couldn't even have like moved into his apartment and he's texting me like, Hey, you know, the Maryland Eastern shore jobs open. And I, you know, I, can I get a sniff at this? And I'm like, dude, like, you have to dominate where you're at right now. Like you have to do a really good job, help that team win as much as humanly possible. And then on the outside of that, then, you know, we can start to, to figure it out because the reality is nobody really wants to hire a guy if they're coming from a losing program. It happens, but it's not nearly as much as if you're, if you're surrounding yourself with, with winning. And then that, so that's the number one thing I would say is, is, is surround yourself with a winning thing. And then the second thing is I always tell the people, I mean, it's, it's, a pretty, you know, th there's a lot of different ways to, to make yourself valuable to a staff. But the one thing that's non-negotiable with division one assistant coaches is you have to provide some sort of value in the recruiting field. And that's just, you know, it's, it's a Jimmy's and Joe's, not an X's and O's type uh, industry. You know, if the, the best players generally win the games and, and obviously coaching matters and culture matters. Both of those two things are huge. But, there, but if you don't have good enough players, there's been a lot of really good coaches who have won a lot and, and then didn't have quite good enough players somewhere else, and then they've lost a lot, and they didn't change their philosophies, they didn't run different sets. So, so the biggest thing I would say is find a way, if you're a young guy and you have a lot of time on your hands, to associate yourself with as many high-level players and as many high-level coaches and, and, and people as humanly possible whether that's, you know, coaching a 16 and under AAU team that's going to that's gonna have a lot of players or being an assistant coach at a national level. You know, I know a guy who literally just took an assistant coaching job at a high level high school uh, 
you know, and it's not like, what are they going to do? They're going to tell you, no, like you're literally just free labor going in there and working every day. But now you have a relationship with those kids. Now co college coaches start calling you, you start getting a reputation as somebody who can, you know, potentially help their, their program in a specific way. Um, and I think that's a huge uh, thing that there's, there's not a whole lot of ways to get that. And that's why the hoop group's great. But if you don't have the opportunity to go to the hoop group, you have to find a way to provide that, you know, if you're coming from a background or a situation where, you know, you're not going to walk in from day one and say, Hey, this, this is my resume. I, you know, played on team USA. I, I scored 1,402 points at, you know, Marquette and, you know, it's just like, that's not something you're ever going to have. So what do you have that other people don't have? And that's something that, you know, I feel like is in your own hands, especially if you're a young guy who's not married, doesn't have any kids and, and can kind of, can kind of go however they want to go. And, and, and uh, as far as, you know, making yourself valuable. Well, you've surrounded yourself with, with success and you've worked for some, you know, amazing head coaches, coach Dambrot, Larinaga, Bowles. We've all, we've mentioned them throughout the podcast. What would you say you've taken from each of those or like one element or value piece that you've taken from them to build your own profile as a coach? Yeah, I would say the number one thing that I've learned from just being around all these different people is that there's really no one way to do it. And you've got to be true to what you truly believe, because, you know, the reality is like, you know, Coach Dambrot, you know, when I during the, the time period when I was at Akron, he had he had a stint where I think it was 11 or 12 straight years where he won 20 games or more. And it was like them, Duke, Gonzaga and somebody else who had that. It was just like an unbelievable stretch. And he was an office guy, you know, eight to eight uh grinder you know really got into the guys at practice uh was big on you know relationships with his guys off the floor but really you know rode them on the court and you know and, and a lot of those guys you have to know what you're getting into when you go and play for a guy like that and and he's to this day is one of my greatest mentors and you know he would do anything for for the people that he cares about and and he cares about his players like crazy but that's his philosophy and if you work for him you got to know that you got to know that it's, it's going to be you know time consuming and, and and then you go for you know I went straight from there to a guy like coach Larinaga you know thinking that everybody and I knew coach Larinaga was a New York guy so I kind of had assumed it was going to be a similar type deal uh and he couldn't have been more laid back with the guys I mean we were literally before the games we would you know one of my jobs as a GA was literally like every day I had to find a different song to put on before the games so we would you know he would bring everybody together. We would put on like some crazy rap song before the game and everybody would be jumping around. We're, I'm talking like 10 minutes before the game started and rapping because he wanted the guys to be loose. And he believed in like, if you're feeling tight and like, you know, it'd be the opposite of like the play angry Wichita State, right? So like that's, that's kind of his philosophy. And uh, there's like a Sports Illustrated article where they talked about how he was wanted his guys to be super loose, yeah. you know, and then you play wiffle ball. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And then it, 100% all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, you go to a guy like, you know, Coach Bowles, you know, who had, who had built his philosophy from the Thad Mata coaching, you know, where it's, you know, he was very big on like next play mentality. He was very big on, you know, getting guys to believe they can do things that, you know, maybe they couldn't really do. And he, in the in the psychological side of things, and, you know, the reality is he got some guys a lot out of guys that I didn't personally think the kid was possible of doing. And, you know, and he was just really, you know, uh, innovative with that kind of stuff, really smart, uh, analytic driven, uh, that kind of stuff. So, so I've kind of seen it from three different people, you know, and then coach Ford, I would say is, you know, different than all those guys. So, 
you know, I don't think there's one way to do it, but whatever you feel comfortable with or confident with, you've got to do because you, you can't fake it with these guys. They're 18 to 22 year old, you know, men, they're not kids. Right. So they can, you know, they can sense if you are not being true to who you are. So whatever it is you believe, however you believe coaching style wins, whatever you've seen, you know, work and you believe in, you've got to go with. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And we talk about ultimate career goals. Clearly it's to become a division one head coach and you've mentioned working and dominating in your own job. How are you setting those goals to reach that aspiration to becoming a division one head coach? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's every, every coaches, uh, every coach wants to do that. And that's something that, you know, it should be a goal for everybody. Cause if you're striving to to do that, then you're going to, you know, be, there's certain things that you have to set in place as an assistant to, to make yourself qualified to do those things. Um, you know, and the big thing is just putting your program in the position to win as much as possible. I mean, you look at the guys who are, you know, like coach Bowles got this job after spending seven years at Ohio state where they were super successful, uh, on a national level, but there's also been guys that have, you know, for instance, a great example recently was, you know, UMBC, they, they had that run, right. They beat Vermont in the conference championship, which at the time was as insane of a win to me as their win. in a couple of weeks after that with Virginia, just because I, you know, of how well Vermont was playing that year and at Vermont, like it's a really tough place to play. So you know, they go and they win those two games and, two of their assistants from the America East both take head division one coaching jobs, one at Delaware state and one at Longwood. Like, you know, if they don't beat Virginia, neither one of those guys probably get the head coaching job. And that's just the reality of it. And, you know, same with, you know, some other guys who have had some success at lower, you know, lower levels as assistants or, or head coaches. And, you know, I think that winning is just the, the thing, man. And that's, you know, and part of that and then culture, right. So like nobody wants to hire somebody who is coming from a program that has, you know, had, you know, you're in the police blog every day, you got this going on, that going on. So if you look like you're representing the program correctly and the, the team is winning, you know, nobody really knows who's doing what. Everybody is associated with the program as a whole. And that's, that's how you know it's a good program because it's not about me. It's about winning as much as possible and, and doing things the right way. And that's, that's, I think that's how everybody has individual success. Well, I will say this. Uh, we got our two culture mentions for the show. So usually on Bovada, it's at like 1.5 mentions. So anybody that was on that <laughs> before this episode, that is, that's cash. I do want to go to Coach Speak, but I, I, do, uh, I do agree with you, Brian. I think a lot of people say like, oh, I need to do this. I need to recruit this amount of players. And I think a lot of times you're right. Like if you do what you're supposed to do and your program is successful and you, know, you, you, you do have to get good at interviewing, like you do have to have the right people in your corner. Like all those are kind of like smaller ancillary things, in my opinion, to the kind of like the greater theme is like, are you really good at what you do? And if you are, I think you can kind of take care of the rest. So I, I do, I, I think you're right. I think like simple is, is better in, in, in that regard because everybody, you know, like you said, has those goals and you kind of wait your turn. And sometimes you see guys that you think maybe don't deserve it as much as you, but if you do what you're supposed to do for a long time, like hopefully you get the opportunities you deserve. So I, I appreciate that. I, we just have one coach speak. Um, I'm just going to do the first one. This is from your former boss, Jim Laranega. And it's funny that you said like, you know, he wasn't super hot on the guys when you were there. Cause he, he did give this, this is a gem. This is an awesome coach speak cliche. <laughs> I, I literally love it. I, I don't, I can't imagine Jim Laranega saying this honestly in the few times I've talked to him, but 
He said, I always tell the kids, you know what's great about going the extra mile? There's very little traffic. Like, I honestly feel like this is a quote. It would be in, like, Michael Scott's office, like, behind his desk, <laughs> above his, like, Timex piece. But I just want you to break this down. First of all, did Jim Larinaga ever say this while you were on staff? And, and did you guys subscribe to this theory? Like, I, I just am curious because that team, when you were there in Miami, was so loose. Like, I, I coached Reggie Johnson the next year when he was in the D-League, and he told me a lot of stories about it. So, like, I just love this quote. Like, can you just explain to us how this kind of got enacted in Miami? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't specifically remember, <laughs> remember him saying that. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's generally – I mean, it does sound exactly like a Michael Scott quote. You're 100% right, which I know – which is probably my favorite show of all time. Um, but that is uh, – yeah, I mean, I think that that is a great coaching philosophy as a whole. I mean, if you're going to – you know, obviously the, the extra, if you're going to do more, you're going to have more success and not a lot of people do go the extra mile. And that's, I think that's what that quote's trying to get at. Right. Yeah. De- I mean, definitely. Right. And, and I would say that like, it seems like on that Miami team, cause that's, I, I, I don't, I don't think it's a stretch to say that that's obviously the best team you've been a part of. Did you, you know, it was an older team too. How were those guys? Cause you had a lot of veterans, right? Like Kenny and then like Reggie and Shane Larkin and, you know, a bunch of other guys who, you know, I don't have the roster in front of me, but like there were older guys in college vets. Like, were they working a ton on their own? Like, did you know going into the season? Cause I do think people were a little bit surprised as that season kind of wore on, but Brian, like, could you see in the summertime and in the fall, like, okay, we have a real shot to like win the national title. Cause I would say like going to the sweet 16, like, you know, anything can happen at that point. Like that team was a legitimate national title contender. Did you see the effort being put in off the court where you were like, holy shit, we can win it all? To be honest with you, I just didn't have a great feel. I had never been to that level. Like, I didn't know if it was just like, I thought we looked really good, you know, and I can remember like calling my dad and being like, I think we're really good. Uh, But I had never really been to the ACC, right? So I didn't really know what an ACC player, you know, at that point it was pre-hoop group. It was pre any of that stuff. So, you know, I I knew that we were talented. Um, I knew that we were, we looked like, you know, a different caliber of athlete than what I had seen before. Uh, and the one thing I could really tell you was those guys were like unbelievable dudes. Like there was not a bad egg on that entire roster, like treated people the right way. Like, you know, I, I, I came in like just, you know, nice guys, I man. Like I, I stay in touch with those guys to this day. Like, you know, not, not for any other reason other than they were just like good people like Julian Gamble and uh, Duran Scott, like those were like legitimately good dudes. So like, you know, I thought that it looked like we could be good, but I don't think anybody, like, including the coaches and stuff, knew that it could be, like, win the first 13 ACC games in a row type good. You know, and I think that's just – we want a lot of, like, one- and two-point games. I mean, that's usually how those seasons go, right? Like, tip-ins at the buzzer and comebacks down by nine with five minutes to go. Like, you know, so I think all those things came together. But I don't think I, anybody really knew it was going to be as good as it was. All right, we're moving on to City Review. We got a special City Review. Yeah, it's Long Island, New York. Some people know it as Strong Island, New York. A lot of different cats up there. I've been up to Long Island a couple times. I enjoy it. I like it. It's a beautiful place. But, Brian, you're going to take us through. You're going to give us three restaurants, two night spots or bars, and one activity. All right. Um, Three restaurants. Uh, All in Port Jefferson, uh, which is right down in the water. Ruvo, pasta, pasta, and Old Fields. Pasta, pasta, Italian food, Ruvo, all kinds of food, and Old Fields for one of the best steaks you've ever had. Ooh. What, what, what kind of steak are you getting? Yeah, you it's, like, a, it's a uh, great question. Like, yeah, actually, I'm not even going to give it away. What kind of steak are you getting? Yeah, I mean, I'm probably going to go 
something uh, I mean, I, I like a bigger cut, so I'll probably get like a ribeye. Yeah, good good man. Bone-in ribeye. Uh, how, sir, how would you like that cooked? <laughs> medium. Oh, okay. I know you're going to say raw. <laughs> no, no, a medium rare. I'm a, hey, I'm a medium rare guy, but that's I mean, great. I mean, Brian, I, I, what you're, what you're forgetting here is that like Smalls is old money. So like this guy's tomahawk <laughs> cut, like dry age, bone in ribeye, like make sure it's moving on the plate. Like we, you and I probably have not had a restaurant experience like Smalls had probably, you know, a couple nights a year growing up. Like these guys 12 years old getting an 18 ounce steak, you know? <laughs> I'm old money. Old money. What does that yeah. mean? <laughs> old money. Old money. You got Eagle season tickets, bro. Like old money. Are you? You? I think old money refers to like family money, right? Yeah, that's what I'm. That's yeah, what I'm that's at. not. Eh, you're a little wrong, but okay. <laughs> All right. So, so ribeye cooked medium. That's good. All right. Two bar, two bars. Uh, two bars. Probably. Uh, one. It's it's super simple. It's it's if you're just gonna go hang out, like it's just like everywhere else in the country. There's a Miller's Ale House right down the street. And the second one is the Port Jeff Jefferson Brewery, because uh, you can bring dogs on the porch. And I have a Bernie Doodle that I would like to bring out there and drink with all day on a Sunday. What's your dog's name? Buddy. Real hey. creative. I'm, <laughs> I'm a really creative dude. <laughs> all right. Oh, give us it. one activity in Long Island. You can say Laxon uh, with the bros, too, if you want. <laughs> Outside of Laxon with the bros. Uh, just probably going to the beach. I mean, like, like our campus here is literally eight minutes from the beach. Uh, my wife and I were down there a little bit earlier today. So it's, you know, we, like our guys go all the time. So I would go to the beach. What's your go-to beach game? If I can ask that. What do you mean? Like, uh, do, are you um, a spike ball guy? Do you like to pull up oh, okay. paddle balls? Something like yeah, that? We, we would do like, um, yeah, I mean, maybe paddle ball, but like some sort of beach volleyball, right? And I would just yeah. set it up to people who were actually athletic. <laughs> maybe hop in one or two times, take a spike, be like Fokker in the uh, Meet the Fockers or Meet the... Yeah, parents. 100%, man. I like just, it. Just get people around me excited. I mean, that's kind of my, my number one goal. <laughs> get them juiced up. Love it. All right, let's do uh, 10 touches. 30-second uh, rapid fire. I got the first five. This is a two-parter. First one is who's the funniest person you've ever worked with or coached? Gino Ford, and it's not even remotely close. He's the funniest human being I've ever been around. He's he's you know literally the funniest guy in, in the, on the on planet Earth, and you should spend time with him if you can. Is he is he just is he unintentionally funny or intentionally funny or it's like both? Like what? I mean, what a little bit it? of a little bit of everything. I mean, he just like everybody who like you know we'll go out on the road and he'll just like have the entire sideline of coaches like in tears right away. He's really like dry and he's really like self deprecating and he's just like he's just a good dude, man. He's like he's hilarious. Like he's you know he's just constantly on and uh, you know just I mean part of it's like that's why our players love him off the court. Like he's. He's a funny, funny dude. All right. And then the second part of this, and this is mainly for me, just because the, Reggie Johnson's probably the, one of the best dudes I've ever been around, like one of the mo- like most coachable guys, like great for a team or whatever. I- I'm curious, the year you were there, what's, your, what's like one favorite Reggie Johnson story? Just because like, I-, I think like everybody should spend some time with him. No, Reggie's a funny dude too. He, um, I would say the number one Reggie story that I had was just, uh, he, we couldn't get him to go to his 9 a.m. classes. So we had to start luring him to class with like McDonald's, uh, d- different type of like, you know, 
like he'd like be upset if you got him like a you know a bagel cheese something you know he, he would literally like you had to lure him out so we'd, we'd have our uh, our golf cart we'd drive up to his dorm we'd have to like shake him try to get him up like a giant grizzly bear uh, <laughs> chase the golf cart we, we, <laughs> we, we literally had to tug him like tie a rope to his ankles tug him to the uh to the golf court uh golf cart essentially and we would golf cart him to his uh eight or nine a.m class uh, but he got there and, and, and he did the work. So that's, that is all that mattered. Yeah, actually, I remember him saying he was a pretty good student. I, I could see that though. Like the, the laziness just in terms of like his off court stuff, like I could definitely see. Uh, yeah, just story. a, just a big lumbering, you know, grizzly bear. He, he told me a story one time of, uh, you, I, first of all, I was stunned cause he said you guys were flying commercial, but he told me a story one time about how they offered like a flight voucher. And he took the flight voucher instead of getting, <laughs> instead of get. I don't know if you were there when that happened. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know when it happened, but he said he took the flight voucher instead of getting back on the commercial flight and then took a later flight or something. I was like, you're, yeah, I, was I, like, I could 100% see that happening. I mean, he's a, uh, that dude's a character, bro. No question. Uh, what is your worst travel experience uh, while you've been coaching? Uh, probably happened last year. Uh, we were playing at Mohegan Sun, which should have been like a two and a half hour, three hour drive for us. And it was during like a crazy winter storm. And, uh, we had literally just come off beating George Washington and South Carolina back to back games. So we were like feeling really great about life. Um, and we had to sit on our bus for 11 and a half hours, what should have been a two and a half, three hour drive. So we didn't we didn't check into our hotel until about three or four a.m. and then we played a like midday uh, early evening game against Holy Cross and lost our third game of the year last year. Um, so that was probably the worst uh, experience. I mean, sitting on that bus for that long was absolutely brutal. What's your uh, if you're binge watching a TV show? I know you said The Office earlier. Anything else? If you get a chance to binge watch some TV, anything you've watched recently? Yeah, we do the Netflix, stuff, you know, like, like Game of Thrones. You know, we got super into that, Ozark, uh, so like stuff like that. You know, and anything where you can sit there and binge, binge watch and knock out four episodes before you go to bed or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Uh, you were teaching. If you weren't coaching basketball, like any thought to like, would you have still, would you still be teaching? Would you have tried a different career path? Like what, what if you weren't coaching basketball, what would you do? Um, I probably would not have been a teacher had I not been able to coach so if I'm not able to coach basketball uh I would probably just be like in sales because I think that's the only other thing I'm qualified for uh you know just just selling people things that they probably don't want um <laughs> but yeah I can't I can't think of anything else that sell me this pen. Why anybody would hire me <laughs> so, yeah sell me this pen all right last one for me what's your favorite and least favorite practice drill uh, my favorite practice drill is anything involving uh, defense, any shell, any type like that, because I'm a big believer in like doing the same basic, you know, seventh grade stuff over and over again. Cause I don't think anybody really masters that kind of stuff. And my least favorite uh, drill is uh, when guys go half speed and they shoot like, uh, you know, this is not a knock on any of these. Yeah, I was going to throw a name in there, but I'm not going to. But any of these, you know, wide open half speed three pointers, uh, you know, that look like you're going on a walk in the park. And that's not the way games are, you know, you really shoot the ball in games. Yeah, so the, that's like the uh, the Lomelo ball, if you will. I don't know if that's who you were thinking of. That, that was the first one when you just described what you were thinking that came to mind. But. Yeah, just, just any of those videos you see with these, especially a lot of these NBA guys where I know they're making, you know, 91 out of 103. So you can maybe get away with it. but you know, just 
half speed against no defender, you know, repping out shots that, you know, you're probably never going to actually see in a real game. For sure. If you could change one thing about college basketball, what would it be? Uh, just being where we are at Stony Brook, I would, I wish there was some sort of mandate uh, for quote unquote high major programs to have to do home and homes with people at our level. Uh, I think that it kind of puts us at an unfair advantage if we can't have, you know, every single big game that we play against teams, it's always at their place or at a neutral site. So, you know, just a, for instance, there was a, there was a clause in, in coach Peichel's contract where they had to come to us in a home and home and we ended up losing the game, but we had an 11 point lead in the second half. And, you know, it was just a different beast. You know, you had a sellout crowd and we get really good crowds here. And, you know, I just think that if we had the opportunity to play a few more bigger level schools at home, you know, we'd have a better opportunity for getting marquee, you know, RPI wins that, that you know, not necessarily to get an at-large bid, but just to kind of, you know, raise the overall profile of the school and the program. Yeah, and I think you can engage more student interest even after they go to that game, more likely to come to the next game, and even fans from the community as well. So I, I think that's awesome. That would be that would be super cool to see. What's your best moment as a coach? Um, probably the ACC championship game uh, when we when we beat North Carolina when I was a GA there. Um, as a, as an actual assistant coach, uh, we were. I'm trying to think the exact specifics, but it's the it's I think it's the biggest comeback in the history of Stony Brook or the America East or something. We were actually down by I think 19 with like six minutes to go or something insane against Albany our first year here, and we came back. We literally, uh, you know, no, actually we were down by 23 because we went on a 20. Five to two run to finish the game, and and we and we tied and went to overtime, and it was like the craziest comeback. It was all over Sports Center, and and obviously Albany's our rival, so that was that was a really cool experience. Too. I would I would love to know the Bovada live line on that game with six minutes left, and just <laughs> someone um, so hammered it, it. And it was <laughs> like plus ten thousand. Just some kid, some college kid was like, "I'll throw a hundred bucks on here." Boom, rich, millionaires, whatever somebody, happens. Somebody probably got a similar line on, like, uh, UCLA-Washington State last night, Smalls. Oh, Good Lord, Chip Kelly, baby. Dude, it, was, it was that. It was the exact same thing as that, man. It was like there was 0% chance. I mean, the game was over. Everybody was at their cars, and it's like, wait, how is this not over? And then it, and then you know, we won. It was crazy. It, it's like one of those things where you look at, like, the game cast, and now they have the analytics to tell you, like, what the chance yeah. of winning is, and it's like 99.9%. And all the time you look at it, and you're like, what is the 0.1% where, like, this happens? And then it finally it. does, and you're like, okay, I get it. All right, makes sense. Yeah. What's your pregame routine? Do you have one? Yeah, on the road, uh, on the road I do. I like to – I'm like kind of an early riser because I have a lot of like, you know, I can't stop thinking about the game. And, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't call it anxiety, but I just – I can't sleep. I'm a little bit of a hyperactive guy as it is. Uh, so I'll get up early, uh, you know, try to, probably about 7 a.m. And I like to just go and just drink a coffee by myself uh like in whatever lobby of the hotel we're in you know then i like to get a little workout in now it's trust it's a it's a ymca workout you, you guys have seen my body you know that it's not, it's not nothing crazy is going on in there uh and then and then I'll, you know we'll go to breakfast and we'll do our normal stuff like that but i gotta get myself like mentally right on game days uh just to kind of i guess eliminate some of that uh built-up energy i have for the day you know 
Yeah, no, for sure. I think you should just start you, go go nuts. Start getting like four shots of espresso in your coffee, double pump vanilla <laughs> latte, 20 ounces. Just go with it. Call it a quadzilla. Shout out Starbucks. <laughs> Last coach who texted you, what did they say? Um, great question. Let me see. We're getting the, going right I, into the, outside, right into the outside, phone. Outside of our uh, outside of our coaches, uh, yeah. Staff, outside of your coaches, outside outside of your coaches on this staff, I have a uh, a high major uh, assistant coach that knows that I am close with a particular kid, and but the kid is never coming to Stony Brook, and he wanted to know uh, if I had any idea what he was thinking about doing for official visits. There you go. That's that's college recruiting. That's networking. Yeah, there you go. That's building the professional profile. (laughs) Now I'm going to change this question around a little bit. Do you have? First off, do you have a secret talent or a hidden talent that we don't know about? The world doesn't know about. No, no scales. Okay, so I'm going to go. I'm going to go this route. We're in a bar. There's a lot of different bar games that you can play. What is your bar game that you think? you could beat anybody or you'd stake it on that one game? Good question, Smalls. Um, either ping pong or darts, but I'm horrible at pool. Okay. Yeah, no, that's good. That's that's good to know. I think everyone's got to have a game in the bar that they're like, hey, man, this is for your life. You got to pick one game and play this dude over here. And, you know, darts or ping pong, I love it. Two podcast guests we need to have on. Um, I'm, I'm super biased. He was my partner at the hoop group. And I think he's an absolute stud. Uh, Jared check at Columbia is, is definitely one. I mean, he's, he's as good of a a person and and coach as you're going to find young guy. Um, and the second one, I would say, I would say Rick McFadden from Duquesne, just because he's had so much success. And I think that he, should be a name that people are are talking about for head coaching jobs more. Uh, you know, he's been part of the entire success of Akron and Duquesne, and you know, a, you know, he's literally in the same tree as Shaka and all those guys. And they were working for Coach Dambra, and he just has stayed with Coach the whole time. And you know, I think he's a, I think he's a, a killer, and you know, he's, you know, still a young guy, even though he's been coaching for a long time. So. Yeah, loyal dude, loyal dude. Good, uh, good Rex for sure. Uh, parting shot, same two questions for every guest. Last segment, I got the first one. Uh, Brian, what's the best advice uh, anyone's ever given you? Um, I think the best advice anybody ever gave me was that it was actually my dad who, who is the you know, you know, should be a saint for raising me in the first place um, with all the stuff I put him through. But you know, just believe in yourself and don't worry about what any else, what everybody else thinks, because the reality is if you don't believe in yourself, then who's going to believe in you? Yeah, definitely. Face to face with your 22 year old self. What are you telling that person? It should be interesting. Stop <laughs> posting on Facebook right now. Um, <laughs> That's a great throw, throw your computer away and, uh, and do, do yourself a favor and, break up with your girlfriend at right now because I, I dated a girl who was a psychopath for way too long before my current wife. <laughs> yeah. That we've all made those bad decisions. It seems like that, that's the type of advice that's really good. Like we do get like, you know, the be yourself to trust the process. And I like totally respect that, but like people who go like really in depth and they're like, hold on, 
when I was 22, like these are the things that were actually going on that hindered me from like getting to where I want to be. And that's what I want to tell that person. Cause, <laughs> cause I do totally respect people who are like, Hey, like it's about the journey. Like you, you kind of, everything happens for a reason. Totally understand that, you know, but there are some things that I would also love to tell my 22 year old self, like, look, man, this is a bad choice. Don't do it. You know? And you just, you know, I think like that's an interesting thing to look at, but uh, we will, we'll let you go. We appreciate you hopping on with us. Like I said, Fun. I mean, I'm expecting it to be a really fun year. Like, I never really like to talk out of turn on these things. But for you guys, like, you do just have a ton of talent. And, like, it's a league that is really, really good and, and much better, I think, than people realize. People know Vermont, and I don't think they realize how good that, like, you know, the Hartfords and the Stony Brooks and, like, the Albanies and every and everybody in the league is. So, UMBC, obviously. And I, and I think, like, this year should be a lot of fun for you guys, Brian. So, like, we're pretty excited to to kind of watch you. Uh, you are at Coach underscore Weber on Twitter, W-E-B-E-R. Go ahead and give him a follow. He also has some great advice on there. Every great thing ever accomplished seemed unrealistic at one point. Very true. I thought you were going <laughs> to go with that for the first question. But, uh, I man, you. I hate you. Nah, we, we, we appreciate you coming on. I think, like I said, your story is a good one for our podcast because, you know, everybody's journey is a little different, but there are a lot of people trying to break in who kind of have the exact same background as you do when they graduated undergrad. And I think, you know, hearing kind of how you did it, we appreciate you coming on and like being honest and open and, you know, answering questions. Cause I think it is helpful for, for a lot of people out there. No, I appreciate you guys having me on, man. And I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of following the podcast too. I started listening to them. They're really good. I think you guys do a great job. No, that's the best way to get on the show is to tell us how much you like us. And then we're like, hey, come on and tell your story. Like, that's what we want. So, all right, Brian, all right, Brian. We, will, uh, we will talk soon. All right, see you guys.